0: Genesis 28:10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Horan. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, The angels of God were ascending and descending on it, and behold, the Lord stood above it and said, "'I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring.'" Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head, and he set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Lutz at first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I will go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. This is God's word. You may sit down. Let me ask for the Lord's help. Lord God, you know in in my preparation that I have written down things here in my notes that you don't want me to say and things that I have not written down that you do want me to say. And so I pray that your spirit will work through my preparation And work through my preaching to deliver only what you have for us today. Lord, help me not to be a distraction. Help us to see Christ clearly. And would you help us to better understand your word revealed in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, every now and again as we are working our way through the book of Genesis, and it's been a while since we we began, we have to step back and remember that this book tells one single coherent story. From Genesis 1 to Genesis 50, it's it's better to think of this like a novel than it is to think of it like a, a scrapbook of events. It's a true story, It's historically accurate. Everyone who appears in Genesis appeared in history and so on. And what is recorded is an account of what actually happened. But it's also literature. So it includes, like any book, some details, but leaves more out. Think about it. We are covering thousands of years of history here in 53 pages. Certainly there are some things that are left out, and certainly what is important has been brought to the forefront. Everything included is carefully curated curated, and carefully worded in order to, to tell us only what we need to know about the broader story of redemption. One of the more critical junctures of this story, written by Moses and the Holy Spirit, is the, that event that we read together and learned about together from Genesis chapter 11, when humanity in rebellion took it upon themselves to build a tower that reached to heaven. The tower in the city that would later become known as Babylon. The people in that city set out with, with what the Puritans would call sinful ambition, when they started to build that tower, explicitly they wanted to make a name for themselves, and they wanted to keep themselves from being dispersed throughout the entire world as God had commanded them. Implicitly, so reading between the lines, implicitly implicitly by building that tower into the heavens or attempting to, they were trying to create a man-made gateway between heaven and earth. A place where they believed they could force God or, or, or the gods or whoever it was that they were worshiping, that, that the, the gods would be forced to come down to them and where they could be in the presence of the, of the gods and so be great in their own minds and to the rest of the world. And, th- and this is also, this is less clear from the text, but this tower to the heavens would also have the effect of standing above any potential flood judgments that God might send against them. In other words, the Tower of Babel from Genesis 11 was humanity's attempt to recreate their own temple of Eden, to enter in and so save themselves and make themselves great outside of God's provision. And as you read the Bible, all throughout the Bible, this, this Babylonian spirit, to make ourselves great outside of God, away from God, this is the spirit of the world, the spirit of rebellion against God. When you see in Revelation the great city of Babylon, it isn't talking about the city that is 53-some-odd miles south of Baghdad now. Rather, Babylon in Revelation is the city of man. It is any and every city or nation or corporation or university that embodies man's prideful opposition to God. According to the biblical worldview, the Babylonian spirit is the spirit of the age, even today, characterized by by this desire to elevate humanity and elevate human achievement And at the same time, bring God down to us. In Genesis chapter 11, God's response to the tower project was to bring confusion and to disperse the people across the globe. And then, by the mercy of God, from that dispersion, God called Abraham. So in the scope of the Genesis story, we need to see that the mercy of God in Genesis 12 is the direct response to the evil of man in Genesis 11. It was to be through Abraham that the grace of God would come to humanity. The nations of the world would be blessed through Abraham's offspring. By the grace of God, humanity would return to Eden and the presence of God, not through our own efforts, but through the blessing that comes through Abraham. So all of Abraham's story, and by extension, Isaac's story, and now as we're getting into Jacob's story, all of this is God's response to humanity's prideful attempt to make ourselves great and to undo by our own power the death and judgment that came after the garden, God's responding to that impulse that we have. And, and, and you see it just in the way that he has interacted with these chosen men, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The Lord came to Abraham first in Genesis 12 while the man was living as a pagan moon worshiper. Right? He did not deserve the call of God. Then, then the Lord came to Abraham again at, in, in Genesis chapter 13 after God redeemed Abraham from grievous sin in Egypt. And then, climactically, he appeared again in, chapter, or in Genesis chapter 15 while Abraham was in a deep, dark sleep. And then when it comes to Isaac, God came to Isaac when he was scared and on the run and at the end of himself. And in our text this morning, God appears to Jacob for the first time when, like Isaac, he's running away, and like J- Abraham, he's, he's sleeping. God's interactions with his chosen seed Come when the men are at their weakest and when they are at their most vulnerable. As if to prove again and again and again that this salvation that's coming through Abraham's seed is not coming from Abraham. It's not in us. The the redemption of mankind is not a tower that any man built, but salvation is in God alone. God's, God's grace is the anti babel as we read Genesis, we are, we are seeing, we're reading this together, we're learning this together, we are seeing that God, in His mercy, is unveiling His plan to save us from ourselves. And He's doing it according to His own grace towards Abraham's offspring, towards us. In this morning's text... We're going to see that plan continuing to unfold, and we're going to see four different aspects of God's grace, and we're going to see even in those aspects of God's grace how this is a response to Babel, all right? So, so the, the, the first aspect of God's grace that we're going to see this morning is that God's grace is an operative grace. So There's going to be four O's, so it's just O. God's grace is an operative grace. He is at work even while we are not. Secondly, we're going to see that God's grace is an overcoming grace. God's grace overcomes our sins. God's grace overcomes our deficiencies. Third, God's grace is an outdoing grace. God's grace outdoes our own abilities. And fourth, his is an outlasting grace. God's grace outlasts our earthly lives and imaginations. We'll see these aspects of God's grace spread throughout the three, what are kind of like three acts or three movements in this passage. You have Jacob's dream, God's promises, and Jacob's response. So we'll see the grace, those four aspects of grace spread through those three movements. It all begins with Jacob's dream. So uh, I hope you have your, your Bible still open because you're going to want to look at the, the words with me. So Genesis twenty-eight ten. Jacob left Beersheba, went towards Haran, and he came to a certain place, stayed there at night because the sun had set. Now, now remember, Jacob has left home uh, in Beersheba. He's left home in haste with very little to his name. Later on, in Genesis, Jacob is going to say, "When I left Beersheba, all I had was my staff." So he's running away with a walking stick, and he has the, he has, he has the promise of the future inheritance, but he doesn't have any earthly possessions and he is headed what is approximately a 1,000 miles north-northeast from home base in search of refuge and a wife. And he's 77. And and, and along the way, he stops in this place that the Bible designates as a certain place. And that clues us in. Remember, as we've been studying Genesis, there's a lot of special geographical locations, when you see certain place, that is God saying, this is important. This is a specific place. Now, why did he stop here? The Bible just says, because the sun had set. That's it. He got as far as he could, scurrying like a rat away from Esau, who wants to kill him, and he ended up in this certain place, which to Jacob is really just a convenient place to camp now that the sun is down. That kind of gives us the setting, and then verse 11 continues, taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay it down in that place to sleep. Now, this is weird. People weren't tougher then, okay? They used soft materials to sleep on just like we do, and surely he had a a rolled up cloak that he could have used. Maybe he could have taken some, some grass or something like that, or leaves to make a, a blanket, maybe a saddle. But Jacob takes a stone. No one else in the entire Bible is ever said to sleep with a stone under his head. So it's possible, based on the translation and some of the language, idiosyncraties, that it's, it's possible that he's putting the stone by his head or near his head Later on, uh, you see that same language to describe something that is near someone's head, exact same language. So it's possible that he's putting the stone by his head, maybe to lay a blanket over it as a kind of a makeshift tent, maybe to hide himself from people who are passing along the road. We don't really know. The sudden appearance of this stone in the story isn't so much its usefulness as a pillow, Or to show us how tough or austere Jacob is, instead the stone is being introduced to us because we're going to see it again used as a pillar. In the south, though, it would sound the same, (laughs) but but later on, the pillar is what will be important. So don't get hung up on the pillow, but don't ignore it because it will be important. So let's look at verse 12 now. And he dreamed, and this is, this is the, the important part, he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. So when you see ladder here, don't think aluminum extension ladder. Instead, think, think, of, a, think of a stairway. This, this language is used elsewhere uh, in, in 2 Samuel, particularly to describe a um, like a a dirt or a stone siege uh, hill that would have been put up against the side of of a, um, a city in order to take over the city. So if you've seen those ancient siege ramps built against ancient city walls, they're very much like stairs that you would see on the side of a pyramid. So that's what's being envisioned here. Jacob's vision is this massive stairway from heaven to earth. And this is where we see some clues that connect us to the Tower of Babel. At Babel, sinful humanity was building a pyramid-like mountain-sized temple that would act as a stairway from earth to heaven and where mankind could connect themselves to the throne room of God and force down God's blessing. They said, back in Genesis 11, they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And here, in Genesis 28, Jacob sees this stairway from God, and you have very similar language. Its top is in the heavens, which is an echo. That's a clue for us. Oh, that's like Genesis 11. Yes, it is. It's just just like that. And here, he's seeing this this stairway, and through this, this vision to Jacob, God is revealing that his work through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob truly is the response to Babel. And it's an important lesson. God alone connects heaven and earth. And God alone brings the blessing. And that is certainly a lesson that Jacob needed to learn. Think about Jacob. His his, his life is all about sinful ambition. He had striven and schemed to force the blessing by his own power. And yet all along, God was the one bringing the blessing to Jacob. One of my favorite Genesis scholars, Meredith Klein, puts it this way He says, Jacob had been seeking to scale the heavens through human genius. But here, he discovered that the heavenly presence descends with help for the helpless as a surprise gift of grace. Isn't that good? In other words, Jacob's scheming, his lying to get the blessing was—it was all human effort. It was all Jacob trying, him striving, something that he was trying to do, but then no, it only comes by God's grace. Jacob had been, in Genesis terms, behaving like a Babylonian, but this God-made stairway to heaven is the anti-Babel. It's the true gateway between heaven and earth. And and, and notice how it is revealed and when it is revealed to him. It's revealed not while Jacob is working or walking or battling. He's not doing anything. The gateway between heaven and earth is revealed while Jacob is sleeping. It comes while he is as good as dead. There's even a rock by his head, like a grave marker, a tombstone. And here is where we see God's grace is operative, While Jacob is passive, you see it, even while Jacob is dead, asleep, God being rich in mercy because of the great love he has for Jacob, communicates the gospel promises to Jacob. And in these promises, there will be no room for boasting from Jacob, but it will all be salvation by God's grace alone. Sometimes we errantly think of the Old Testament with all of its rules as the story of works righteousness. And the New Testament has the story of grace. But are you seeing how that's not the case? I hope that as you've been listening to Dustin in 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 Galatians, that you know that's not the case. It's always been a story of grace. Jacob is sleeping when God comes to him. God's plan of salvation did not change from Genesis to the Gospels. Rather, God's plan of salvation unfolded. It was slowly revealed. Humanity has never been able to work our way into God's blessing. We were never expected to. Before time began, God's blessing was always going to come by God's sovereign grace. And we're seeing that as we compare man's pitiful attempt at salvation by works through building this tower into heaven that God looks down at and laughs at, and then at the same time, this pre-existing, God-made, angel-laden stairway into heaven. There's no comparing them. One is salvation, and the other is condemnation. Speaking of these angels, though, because I know some of you are wondering about why there are these angels going up and down the stairway. Some of you, do you imagine when you read this like an escalator and there's just some going up and some going down? Yes, okay. It's not just me then. Well, several times in the scriptures, we are told about angels who are gathered around God's throne and then they are sent out to various places in the earth, the human realm, to do God's bidding. Uh, Hebrews 1.14 gives us a summary statement as to the duties of these angels. Hebrews 1.14 says, They are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Picking that up? They are ministering, angels are ministering spirits sent out by God to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. And that's what we're seeing here. These angels, these ministering spirits, they're coming and going between heaven and earth through this divinely appointed gateway or stairway, and they're coming and going for the purpose of serving those who are to inherit salvation, namely, Jacob. These angels are the extension of God's grace to Jacob. Jacob. The sense is that these unseen beings that we normally don't get to see will be assisting Jacob even when he doesn't know it. God's grace is operative. These divine beings will be carrying out the will of God in Jacob's life, and we'll see some weird stuff in Jacob's life that shows us there's something, somebody's helping him here. These divine beings are carrying out God's will in Jacob's life according to the always operating grace of God toward Jacob. Jacob. And we see more of God's grace in the second movement of the text, in God's promises. So here we have the the temple stairway structure. Angels are coming and going from heaven. And then in verse 13, the Lord is there. Verse 13 says, And behold, the Lord stood above it. So, So what we're about to see, what we're about to hear, is not just a voice from heaven from an indistinct sound, but from a visible person in a specific place. We are to to understand that this this gateway stairway goes directly into God's glorious throne room. And standing in in, in the place of His glory, that, that place where God's glory is, truly, the Lord is there, and He says from there to Jacob, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Now, we've heard these promises before. This is identical to what what God told Abraham. It's identical to what God told Isaac with a couple names added in. God is identifying himself by his covenant name. He uses Yahweh, the Lord, when we see all caps there, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That is God's covenant name, his revealed name to those he is... Uh, in, in, in that covenant relationship with, he's revealed by that same name, and using that name, we are clued in. Oh, he has revealed himself as Yahweh. That's his true name, and he's gonna reveal himself to Jacob, so he must be making a covenant promise to Jacob here. And that's what's happening. The land promise is now being passed from God to Jacob. Now, Jacob, we know from chapter 27. He's already kind of sort of gotten this promise or blessing or inheritance, and he got it by trickery. And then again, Isaac himself gave it to Jacob, but that was also kind of a resort of Rebekah's mission. But now God is teaching Jacob that this blessing doesn't come from your trickery and it doesn't come from your mom working on your behalf. The blessing comes from God by his sovereign grace, again, while you sleep. Notice also that God promises him the land, even as, where's Jacob? He's on his way out of the land. He gets the, the land promise, even as he's leaving the land behind, leaving it to Esau, no less, the guy who wants to kill him. So, th- so then in the same way that God promised Abraham He promises Jacob abundant offspring. Verse 14, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. Jacob gets this promise, the the abundant offspring, even though he's unmarried. So even while Jacob is leaving the land to his raging brother, and even while 77-year-old Jacob remains single, God, by the power of his word, is creating this future for Jacob. What we see here is this aspect of God's grace that teaches us God's grace overcomes. God's grace is an overcoming grace. There are no obstacles, there are no circumstances that will stand in the way of these promises of God. Esau, being in the land, will not stand in the way of Jacob inheriting the land. Jacob, being single, will not stand in the way of a great nation coming from Jacob. Jacob's deficiencies will be overcome by God's grace. So too will Jacob's sin. Remember who he is. He is, as Isaiah titles him, the worm. You worm, Jacob. He's a liar. He's a schemer. And yet God, in his grace toward Jacob, has chosen to appear to Jacob to reveal the unseen realm of glory to Jacob, to make these precious promises to Jacob, all the while Jacob is still a liar, he's still a schemer. And yet, as we see in Jacob's story, as we will see in Jacob's story, God's grace overcomes Jacob's sin. That's true for you too. No, you don't have a land promise like this. You don't have the promise of offspring like the dust of the earth. Some of you are thankful for that. But you do have the promise of eternal life in the new creation, which is the greater land promise. And you do have the promise of belonging to the Father as his adopted child, which is the fulfillment of the dust of the earth promise. Further, you have the promise that though you are a sinner like Jacob, you will grow... In Christ's likeness, through your your adoption and by God's Spirit in you, your sinfulness will be overcome. There isn't one of you here who's truly a Christian that doesn't struggle against sin. Pride, anxiety, fearfulness, deceitfulness, a short temper impulsiveness, all of us. Listen, that doesn't stop God from working in you, though. It's it's not that God is waiting for you to start being obedient, and then he'll give you his grace. That wouldn't be grace, would it? That would be something you earned, and then you'd have a reason to boast, and then we'd be right back at Babel, building temples, or in Rome, building cathedrals. Or Salt Lake City, building whatever that thing is. God's grace in you is creating your joyful obedience. God's grace came to Jacob while he's asleep, symbolically dead, with a tombstone at his head, and we all know he's a liar. He didn't start obeying God and then get God's grace. It's the same thing for you. God's grace comes to you before you're obedient. God's grace in you creates joyful obedience. Remember, God's grace is operative when you were not. And God's grace is overcoming your sin, He's overcoming your deficiencies, and even your resistance to Him. Praise God. So listen, if you're frustrated with yourself because you're not who you want to be in Christ right now, if you're fighting against sinful desires and sinful impulses, God's grace towards you will overcome your sin because you're in Christ. He will. And it's not that you have to try, 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 try harder to make it happen. He will, because you're in Christ, overcome your sin. He has already defeated the power of sin in you, and he is even now overcoming those vestiges that remain. Not only does God's grace overcome our deficiencies, His grace also outdoes our abilities. We see that in the next promise in verse 14. You shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, and to the south. Now this one is... I need you to pay attention to this one. Okay. Put your thinking caps on. Just as the the God-made stairs in the dream were a response to the man-made tower of Babel. This spread abroad, decree spread abroad to the West and so on. This is the anti-Babel message. So you have the stairs, the anti-Tower, the anti-Babel tower, and here you have the dispersion, which is the anti-Babel message. The people at Babel had built this city in order to not be dispersed. They said as much in Genesis chapter 11. But God says you will be fruitful and multiply, and you will be spread in all directions. In other words, through this spreading, your offspring, this is what God is telling Jacob, through this spreading, your offspring will spread across the world, and they will have dominion over the world. And that promise had been interrupted by Adam's sin, and yet God overcame. And that promise was interrupted by the Sin at Babel, and yet God overcame because God's grace is overcoming. And and it is an outdoing grace because this worldwide dominion simply isn't something that Jacob in himself can do, is it? Remember who he is. Single guy. Older guy. No kids. And yet God says, dust of the earth spread across the world. This this kingdom that God is building through Jacob is one that far, far surpasses who Jacob is or what he can accomplish. He has no land, no suitable helper. He has a walking stick to his name, and yet God said he's going to make a worldwide kingdom out of him. How? Because God's grace is an outdoing grace. His grace does through us what we cannot do. I think that's what I was trying to say about prayer. When we come together as the church to pray during our prayer service, God's grace does something greater than what we're doing on our own. This promise is further colored in for us in the rest of verse 14. The Lord says to Jacob, and in you, so you've got dust offspring, like as many as the dust of the earth, you have spread out throughout the earth. And then the Lord says, and in you, and your offspring, So all those people that are spread across the earth, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now, if you know your Bible, you know your Old Testament, even if you don't, I'm going to tell you. You're wondering, when did Jacob, or later on Israel, ever spread across the entire globe bringing the blessing of God to the nations? It didn't happen. Not in Jacob, not in any of his 12 sons, not in his grandsons or great great grandsons or any of that. In fact, once Israel is huge and they inherit the land, they're going to show themselves not to be a blessing to the nations, but to be just like the nations. Read Judges, but not right before bed. (laughs) But through Christ, the offspring of Jacob, Judah, David, Solomon, down the line, through Christ, through the promised offspring, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. When the Christ comes and crucifies the flesh and the power of sin, and then he sends the spirit, then the true, real, promised multiplication begins and the true spreading of the kingdom begins. Jesus tells his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. That's spreading into all the world language, isn't it? North, south, east, and west go to all of those nations, baptizing them, that's adoption language, that's where we become members of Jacob's family, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, that's kingship language. The Lord himself will far outdo anything that Jacob is ever able to do. Jacob's life is spent learning that lesson. Experiencing the grace of God, growing in the grace of God. But Jacob's life is not one that accomplished God's promises for him, is it? Jacob couldn't. These promises are too great. God did that. God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. According to the power that's at work within us, therefore, to him be the glory. Not Jacob to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. I am so thankful that God's work in this church exceeds my abilities as a pastor. Even three pastors together, we're, we're probably worse when you combine all of our powers together. But God's, God's work in this church is far more abundant than what we can ask or think because his grace outdoes our abilities. All of the promises up to this point in Genesis 28 tell us a few important things about the grace of God to sinful Jacob. God's grace is operative. God's grace is overcoming. And God's grace is outdoing I told you there were four, though. God's grace is also an outlasting grace. God's grace outlasts Jacob's life, and God promises him his, uh, that, that same thing. Look at verse 15. Behold, I am with you, and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now, I just quoted Matthew 28 a moment ago showing the ultimate fulfillment of the promise of the worldwide kingdom doesn't come until we get Jesus. Isn't it interesting that at the end of Matthew 28, Jesus says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And here, God tells Jacob nearly the same thing. Behold, I am with you. And behold, I will keep you wherever you go. I'll bring you back. I will not leave you. Do you think those two quotes might be related? Let's just do some good... Bible study together? Yes. The answer is yes. When God to Jacob made the promise of his presence, until it is all accomplished, God was making a very, very, very long promise to Jacob. The promise of God's presence is an enduring, persevering, outlasting promise, because God's grace is enduring and persevering and outlasting. The promise of the always and forever presence of God with Jacob outlasts Jacob's life. It outlasts all of his son's lives and his grandson's lives. It is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and then is passed down further to the church, the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by faith. Brothers and sisters, do you see that you have inherited this great and precious promise of the presence of God with you? And did you know that it will outlast your earthly life. This promise will outlast Del Cerro Baptist. If the Lord tarries, we will all die, and the United States will probably almost certainly dissolve or be conquered, and San Diego may lie in ruin and this building will crumble, but there will still be people across the globe were adopted into Jacob's family who received the promise of the presence of God that God gave Jacob that night God's grace is an outlasting grace cannot be outdone we see more of God's outlasting grace in the last act of this passage Jacob's response In verses 16 through 18, Jacob interprets for us. So he wakes up and he interprets for us, the reader of Genesis, what just happened. So verse 16, Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I didn't know it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? Now Jacob is sitting there and he's focusing on the earthly location, isn't he? Verse 11 says, he came to a certain place. Jacob now realizes that this specific place is important. The Lord is in this place, he says, because this place is awesome. And then he goes on and says, this place, this is none other than the house of God. This place is the gate of heaven. The house of God is temple language, all right? I want you to just... Whenever you see house of God anywhere in the Bible, that's temple language. A temple is a house for a God. That's what a temple is. A gate of heaven is also temple language because a temple is a gateway into the heavenly realm. That's how the ancients thought about it. A temple is like a a cosmic intersection between the heavenly realm that you cannot see and the earthly realm that you can see. That's what the mountain garden of Eden was. That's what Babel was trying to replicate, and Jacob sees Oh, that's what this is. This is the house of God. This is the temple. This is the gateway to heaven. It's a temple. God has made himself known here. He lives here. It's his house. And that stairway ladder thing is the connection between earth and heaven. It's the gateway, the doorway. So Jacob does, what he does is essentially lay the first stone of the construction of the earthly temple. Look at verse 18. So early in the morning. Realizing that this is God's temple, his house, early in the morning, Jacob took the stone he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. And he called the name of the place Bethel, which means house of God. Since this is God's house, it needs a cornerstone, a first rock for the building of the foundation. This rock, symbolically, is the cornerstone of the temple, and it is consecrated, which is to say it's made holy, set apart for special purposes with this oil that he pours on it. And now that God has made his promises to Jacob, Jacob is going to make promises to God. So here's the first stone of the temple. Now I'm going to make my promises to you, God. That's why we call this scene a covenant ceremony. God tells Jacob, I'll be your God, and Jacob tells God, I'll be your servant but it's kind of interesting and we have to look at it carefully. Look at verse 20. Jacob made a vow saying, if God, and you're seeing that if, right? You see that if? Okay, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I may come again to my father's house in peace, which could mean God's house, it could mean Isaac's house, then the Lord will be my God. It sounds like a conditional promise, right? If you do these things for me, then you can be my God, then I'll worship you. But remember what God is promising Jacob. The key to these promises is safe return to the land. Jacob is going out into the unknown. He doesn't know Uncle Laban. He, he, he doesn't know, we will soon know Uncle Laban, but he, he also doesn't know what sort of bandits will be on his journey, or what warring tribes will be on his journey that he will come across on this thousand mile journey to, to Haran. All Jacob knows is, I'm defenseless, I'm going into the unknown, I might not even make it back. So he, he's telling God, I trust you. I trust you. This is, a, this is a statement of faith. It sounds like a conditional trick, but it's not. This is faith. I trust you will bring me back here. And when you do, because this is your dwelling place, you will be my God in this land. Remember, the land is the issue here. We kind of miss that. But Israelites reading this, for whom the land was always the issue, they know the land is the issue. Away from the land, Jacob is just a guy holding on to a few precious promises in the land, all of those promises come to fruition. In the land, Jacob is a servant of Yahweh who dwells in the land. So it may seem strange to see this response from Jacob, and it took me all week to finally go, okay, Jacob, it's okay that you said this, Uh but but it really is beholden upon God to be faithful to his promises, to bring Jacob back into the land. And Jacob is trusting here. God will do it, do it. And that's the big issue with this temple thing that he starts to build. God's presence in Jacob's mind is magnified in the land. So he says, you'll be my God here when I get back to the land. Because in his mind, God was only one who could extend as far as the boundaries of Canaan. He didn't know that God could go all the way to Haran. So he's thinking like an ancient, and, and he's thinking here, this is where God is, this is where God's temple is, God's going to bring me back, and when he does, this is where I will worship him. So that's what we get to verse 22. This stone, he explains the stone for us, this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. Now what did it tell you God's house was? It's a temple. So he's saying this is where God's going to dwell, not in the stone. We'll talk about that in a minute. And of all that you give me, I will give you a full tenth. So he's not saying that God is going to live inside the rock. He's saying that this is the first of the rocks which will make up the house of God. This is the beginning of the temple which will be built upon Jacob's return. In fact, Keep reading in Genesis, when Jacob returns to this place, when he returns to Canaan, he's going to come back to this place called Bethel, the house of God, the gateway between heaven and earth, and he's going to receive a new name from God, which is to say the covenant is confirmed, and here Jacob will set up another stone, another rock, to go on the temple foundation. And he's going to worship God here again. And this is why we see that tithe language at the end of verse 22. Because once the temple is built with this rock as its cornerstone, then Jacob's offspring will serve the Lord in the temple and bring a tenth of all they receive from the Lord. That's what we're seeing here. Just like Abraham gave that tenth to Melchizedek, the priest of the Lord, in chapter 14, Jacob is promising the temple of God dwelling in the temple of the Lord, a tenth of all he has for temple use. Those are foreshadowings, though, of what is to come when God brings the the Mosaic Covenant in Exodus, where God instructs his people on the building of the tabernacle, which is the portable dwelling place of God and the tenth, the tithe. Later on, that tabernacle from Exodus would be made permanent by Solomon, the son of David, who would build for God a temple made of stone. And that would be for Israel the link between heaven and earth. In fact, This is just legend, okay? Not thus saith the Lord, but Jewish legend has it that the cornerstone to Solomon's temple built in Jerusalem was this stone laid here by Jacob. It was brought from Bethel, apparently, to Jerusalem for the purpose of temple construction. Now, whether that's true or not is irrelevant because that temple was torn down. And it's also irrelevant because there is a greater fulfillment of the tabernacle and the temple, and there is a greater cornerstone, isn't there? Jacob was excited about the place. Oh, this place is special. This place is awesome. This place is the house of God and so on. And what he did not know, what we now know, was that the place would be fulfilled in a person. God's grace will outlast Jacob it will outlast this rock, it will outlast the tabernacle, it will outlast both temples. God's grace comes in a person. When Jesus comes, John chapter 1 tells us that that Jesus is the word of God. So think of the promises of God given to Jacob. The word of god those words became manifest the word became realized when the word of god was made flesh and he dwelt or as john says he tabernacled among us so already in john chapter one jesus is the word of god which is the promises of god who tabernacles you've got that temple language there he is the word who has become the presence of god to his people very similar to that promise given to abraham or to jacob And that's a a brief summary. When you read John 1, 1 through 14, I'm not going to preach those, but write them down. You see that summary. The word becomes the presence of God to his people. But in the same chapter in John's gospel, Jesus himself reveals he is the connection between heaven and earth. In that scene that I read earlier at the very beginning of Jesus's ministry, when he's calling his disciples, Nathanael hears that Jesus knew where he was early in their day. Big deal. Jesus says, that's what's amazing to you? I've got something better. And, and listen again to John 1:50 50 and 51. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the thick tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things. And he said to him, Truly, truly, that's a double truly, Amen and Amen, listen carefully. I say to you, You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. There is no doubt that Jesus is directly referring to Genesis 28 there. Heaven opened, angels ascending and descending. In Genesis 28, that was a glimpse at the temple that was to come in the land. But now Jesus says those angels aren't going to be ascending and descending on a building. It's not some structure that they come and go on. It is the Son of Man himself. That's Jesus' favorite designator for himself. The presence of God is no longer this temple structure or inside a temple structure, the presence of the glory of God will be found in Christ himself. That Messiah who is presented before the ancient of days and all authority in heaven and on earth is given to him. It is this God-man who now manifests the presence of God. It is this God-man, Jesus, the Messiah, who is the dwelling glory of God with his people. Jesus goes on In the gospel of John, to explicitly call himself the temple. Tear down this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. And John says, he was talking about himself. And then he'll also say, he's the gateway to the sheep. The gateway to heaven, the door to heaven. He's the temple. He's the presence of God. He's the way to God. Jesus is the one who fulfills all that happens here in Genesis 28. Because Jesus is the grace of God That outlasts Jacob. It is Jesus himself who is God's ultimate response to Babel. Jesus is God's response to our striving. Jesus is the offspring God promised Abraham way back in Genesis chapter, chapter 12. Jesus is the one through whom the blessing to the nations comes. Jesus, the one who was sent while you and I were dead in our trespasses, lying with a stone by our head. He is the operative grace of God while you are passive. Jesus is the one who has overcome your deficiencies, your circumstances, and your sin. Jesus overcame the cross and death in order to save you. And in that... Jesus outdoes anything you could ever think or do to save yourself. He does what you cannot. Jesus is the one whose work on your behalf outlasts your earthly life. Jesus is building his church, he's spreading his kingdom, he's spreading his glory and his renown throughout the world, north and south and east and west, and his presence will continue And continue until Babylon the great has fallen once for all. And the angels say, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and Messiah. And then his glory will fill all in all. And we just went from Genesis to Revelation. Amen? Let's praise him.